Well, who of you has read the book Oliver Twist? Maybe you read it in high school or college. Um, Dickens is one of my favorite authors, so I've read it several times. Uh, but it's, it's a story that even though it's beautiful, maybe because we know the ending, it can be a little bit hard to read because there's this poor orphan boy named Oliver. He has no help or hope in the world. It seems like any time he's able to finally take a step forward, then it's just two steps back. And each time there's a little bit of hope, it's just met with disappointment and obstacles. His story is going to feel a little bit like what this passage that we're, that we're going to read today is going to feel like. It's full of high highs and low lows. Paul is going to experience some great success, but it's going to be followed by huge setbacks. So get ready. Steal yourselves, because we're going to go on a little bit of an emotional journey here uh, in Acts chapter 13. So let's pray before we start. Um, Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you that you have promised that it will never return to you void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so we come with open hands, open hearts, open minds. Would you accomplish your purpose in our lives this morning through your word? We come ready, we come willing, we come yielded. Do that work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to skip over the first few verses, which simply tell about the church in Antioch praying for and sending Paul and Barnabas off on their very first missionary journey. So before we get into the passage, I want to show you a map, because as it is a missionary journey, we're going to be traveling. So I want us to orient ourselves and figure out where we are. So if you see where it says Syria, on the west coast, kind of towards the top, you'll see where it says Antioch. So this is where they're starting out from. And then you see that blue line and arrow that goes down into the island of Cyprus. This is where we're going to be starting out our journey. Uh, so you can see how they go to the kind of the east coast and then they're going to be traveling across Cyprus. So with that in mind, uh, let's start at verse 4 of Acts chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. <clears throat> he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who had summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him, and he said this, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, 
And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and he had seen what had occurred, and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I think you can agree, this is a pretty wild story, right? We have magicians, we have uh, Paul saying some very intense words. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I think there's an important phrase that's repeated that we need to look at because it's going to impact how we read this passage. In verse 4, we're told that Barnabas and Paul were sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, we're told that Paul was filled with what? The Holy Spirit. So it's important to start here because we need to see that their work and their words were full of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but when I give somebody a good talking to, you can probably be sure that it's not full of the Holy Spirit. So that's why it's important we put it in context. Paul's words to the magician Bar-Jesus, which that's an ironic name that he was given, right? Paul's words to him were not spoken out of anger or impatience or jealousy or even annoyance. They were spoken in truth and love. He knew that this man knew what he was doing. He was knowingly trying to prevent God's work and his message. Now, these apostles, these men on this missionary journey, it was an all-star cast. There was Paul, there was Barnabas, and I don't know if you caught it, but even the apostle John was on this leg of the journey. Yes, that's the John who wrote the Gospel of John. Now, they had all spoken so powerfully and persuasively in the synagogue that the proconsul listened intently to what they said. He even invited them to come and share more. This was a man who surely had great sway and influence in his community. But here comes this bar Jesus, slithering up to him and whispering in his ear that these men and their message cannot be trusted. It reminds me of a scene from the final Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King. We're going to play it for you so you can get a picture of what this exchange might have looked and felt like. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. He's a herald of world. The courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Theoden King. <coughs> not welcome. Why? Should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I name it. Ill news is an ill guest. Be silent. Keep your full tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. Stop. I told you to take the wizard. Stop. Whew, it's an intense scene, right? <laughs> you hear some similarities? He says, keep that forked tongue behind your teeth, which feels like Paul saying, you enemy. 
of all righteousness, you son of the devil. Even though Paul's words to Bar-Jesus were a little harsh, and by harsh I mean savage, he probably couldn't have helped seeing a little bit of himself in this man's story. This was a man who opposed the work and the men of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Who trusted in the complete wrong thing. Sound familiar? And who ended up blinded by his own sinful ambition. Does that sound like Paul? Even as he spoke the truth to Bar-Jesus, Paul surely had to have felt some love and compassion remembering his own story, remembering how he persecuted Christians. The lesson that we can take from this story is that as we are being filled by the Holy Spirit, we don't have to worry about having the most persuasive or charismatic or charming or eloquent words. It's God's Spirit who brings power to our words when they are spoken in obedience and by His Spirit. It's the kind of power that can change people from the inside out. Here's a math equation for you. Now, I know that some of y'all have finished school, so you're going to be mad at me for saying the word math, but this is an easy one you can remember. Obedient words plus the Holy Spirit equals power. We can do hard things when we're fueled by the spirit and purpose of God. Now, some of you may know that back in my 20s, we won't say how long ago that was, I was a missionary in East Asia. Over the years, people have asked me how I went to a country across the world that I have never stepped foot on before, that spoke a language that I did not speak a single word of, how I did that. Wasn't I afraid? Well, my answer to them was really quite simple. I didn't go alone. I understood from the very first day there that God had gone before me, he came with me, and he hemmed me in on the backside. His presence and his grace were and are truly sufficient for whatever mission he calls me and you to. With that promise, that beautiful promise in mind, we're going to dive back in here to the second part of our story. I'm going to warn you that this part is a little long, but it includes a whole sermon. Um, even by our standards, it's not terrible because it's only about three minutes, but I'm still going to summarize it for you just so we don't have to listen to the whole thing. So in verse 13, we see that Paul and his companions, can you bring up the map one more time for me? Paul and his companions set sail from the westernmost tip of Cyprus. So they've gone across now the whole island, and they're sailing up from the westernmost tip, and you see that blue arrow that goes up. They land on the coast of Perga. You see the southern coast. At that point, they travel north on foot to a second city called Antioch. Not the Antioch that we started out at, but another city called Antioch. On the way... The Apostle John peels off, and he heads back to Jerusalem. So finally, they're arriving at their destination. You can go ahead and move the map off. <clears throat> so they're at the big, booming town of Antioch. They settle in. They unpack their suitcases. And then on the Sabbath, they do what all good Jews do, which is go to the synagogue. So they take their seats. They're very polite and they wait for the service. 
Well, while someone is reading the first scripture, the leaders of the church are furiously scribbling, and they pass a note to Paul and Barnabas. And they're asking them, will they share an impromptu word of encouragement with the people? Now, I promise I would never do that to you. I would never ask you to stand up and share a word with the people in the middle of church. But maybe the rabbi didn't have time to finish his sermon that week. Maybe Paul and Barnabas just looked so wise that they thought, you know, they have a motivational word for the day. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the Spirit prompted these men to ask Paul and uh, Barnabas to share some thoughts with the people. Well, never being one to say no to a speaking engagement, Paul stands up and he begins to outline Jewish history and the major acts of God in the redemption plan of the people Israel. He uses scripture as well as his own encyclopedic knowledge of Jewish history to prove that everything in the Old Testament from beginning to end culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, hey guys, don't miss this. What God did then, he is still doing in our very midst. And then this is where we're going to pick up. We're in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, catch this, almost the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drove them out of their district, but they shook the dust off their feet against them, and they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Are you feeling the Oliver Twistness of this story? They have great success with the proconsul, and then Bar-Jesus gets in the way, but then God does something incredible and he believes. And then they have all this excitement at the, uh, at the synagogue, and the people want to hear more, and the whole town shows up. And then again, there's resistance and persecution. One step forward, two steps back. I don't know how Paul was not emotionally exhausted by this point, and this is only his first missionary journey. He has three in total. I don't know how he's not exhausted, but he's fueled by the Holy Spirit, and he is there. He's present. The synagogue service ends with the people begging Paul and his companions to come back and be their guest preacher again the next Sabbath. 
His words were so impactful that the people wanted to hear more and more and more of them. In fact, some of them didn't even want to wait until the Sabbath. They followed them. Do you catch that part? They followed them out, asking them more questions and listening to what they had to say. Now, there must have been quite a stir throughout the whole week because who showed up the next week? The whole dang town. Can you imagine that? If all of Columbus showed up in this sanctuary next week, wow, we would be stuffed to the gills. The whole town comes to listen, but there was a problem. The Jewish leaders were not very happy. In fact, they were pretty ticked off. When they saw the popularity, not just of these men, but their message of Jesus, they were filled with jealousy, and they were bound and determined to do whatever it took to discredit them and their message. Now, can you imagine that? Paul, who calls himself a Jew of Jews, he had the pedigree and the heritage. He grew up in this faith. These men should have been his greatest cheerleaders, right? They should have been the ones giving him a platform, applauding, telling all the people to listen, and instead, all they get in return is persecution. These leaders went out of their way to blaspheme and disparage Paul, to put every possible in front of the gospel message. But as is the way of God, persecution actually had the opposite effect. God had already planned a divine detour around that obstacle. Instead of Paul and his companions cowering in fear and shame or caving to the peer pressure, they only spoke more boldly. They let the Jewish leaders know in no uncertain terms that they had forfeited their inheritance from God. The family jewel, so to speak, the reward of heaven, would now be offered to those outside of the Jewish faith, to neighbors and even perfect strangers, in other words, to the Gentile community. And to the Gentiles, this was good news indeed. You may be wondering, as you've read throughout scriptures, you'll see this is a theme that comes up, that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. You may be wondering why, why that's true. Well, I've found that any time I get stuck in scripture, using the paradigm of family always helps me to understand better. So think of it this way. No good parent, no matter how kind and generous, is gonna skip over their own hungry children in order to feed another hungry child. They will first feed their own, and then they will feed the others. But this is where it gets interesting. God is so wildly generous, and his resources are so limitless that he does something different. He extends his kindness and care to the Gentiles and offers them an, invo an invitation to become a member of his very own family. Now, if you notice that your pew neighbor is starting to fall asleep or, or, you know, if they're on their phone or getting a little distracted, this is your time to lovingly and gently nudge them. Now, gently is the word, because I'm going to make all of us read this verse out loud. Are we ready? Are we all awake? Okay, here we go. 
but to, oh, you pull it up, John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel, that all are welcomed into the family of God through Jesus, who made a way back to God possible. That's what's also equally baffling. These Jewish leaders, they had been given the word of God. They had seen the acts of God. They had, they had experienced the promises of God, and they had known the very own Son of God. And yet they were resentful of his ways. God isn't doing things the way that they would. And so they raise up a resistance. They literally kick the missionaries out of town. But even though you can stop the messenger of God, you cannot stop the message of God. God's word goes out in power and it transforms the Gentile community, bringing them new life, new hope, and new joy. This is the second principle I want to share. We can endure hard circumstances when we're filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You can almost hear these missionaries singing Taylor Swift's Shake It Off as they make their way out of town. Their joy is not diminished. Their purpose is not dampened. Their ministry plans are not altered or canceled. They are experiencing the promise of Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. When things don't go your way, when others say unkind things to you, when God's way is not your way, what's your honest reaction? Is what is spilling out from you from your own flesh? Is it frustration, anger, disappointment, hurt, despondency, helplessness or a desire for revenge? Or is what is spilling out from you from the Spirit? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Well, that, that verse is found in Galatians 5.22. I don't know if you've read the next verse before, but after he lists the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says this, Against such things, there is no law. It's kind of weird, right? No law against fruit. That's a weird thing to say. But I think that what he means is this. There is no limit when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. You can't ever have too much godly love, too much godly patience. We can have way too much of the opposite, right? But... There is no limit to how much of these beautiful fruits the Holy Spirit can grow in us when we are walking with him. Wouldn't you love to be able to be the kind of person who can shake it off the way that Paul and his companions did? We can be. And Paul tells us how. In Galatians 5, he goes on to say, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It means we don't run out ahead of him foolishly confident in our own abilities and wisdom. But we also don't lag behind him, stubbornly resentful of the way he's going or how long it's taking to get there. Rather, with the trust and love of a child, we put our hand in his. 
we walk with him, listening, watching, stopping where he stops, and keeping pace with him. When we're walking with the Holy Spirit, we can do hard things, and we can endure hard, hard circumstances, trusting that he knows the perfect way forward. So how about you? How do you need to get in step with the Spirit this week? Do you sense that you've run ahead of him, however well-intentioned your own plans are? Or are you feeling like you're lagging behind, not quite confident of the way he's going? I would encourage us, and I include myself in this, to take some time this week to start out each day as the disciples did. I don't know if you noticed, but I didn't read the first couple verses in this chapter, and that was on purpose, because we're going to read them now. We're going to start in verse 2. So this is the beginning of the story. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Did you notice the order that things happened in? Worshiping, fasting, listening, waiting, praying, and then sending, then going. I want to encourage you this week, again, I include myself in this, to get back in the rhythm with the Spirit. Spend some time in worship and prayer, listening to God's words and experiencing and enjoying his presence. Ask him to help you again, like a child, take his hand and walk with him, pausing where he pauses and going when he goes. See if he doesn't just put you in a place, as Pastor Mike says, to invest and invite. Who might he have you invest in this week? And where might he have you invite them? To VBS? To our summer of fun? Or maybe even to your own dinner table? When Paul was led by the Spirit, he naturally invested and invited. And verse 48 tells us the result. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. It can be easy for us to gloss over those words, but think about that. Men and women went from death to life that day, from aimlessness to purpose, from orphan to beloved child. You may feel a bit like Oliver Twist, one step forward and two steps back, but I promise you in the economy of God that is never really the case. His steps are sure and purposeful. His feet always land in the right place at just the right time. His way is so perfect. So let's learn how to walk in it together, church. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you teach us the art of keeping in step with you? Help us to listen Help us to trust like a child and to not be embarrassed about that. Help us to obey. Help us to enjoy walking at your side. No child is ever angry to hold their parent's hand and walk 
somewhere in purpose and in joy. So, Lord, we trust you. Help us. Help us when we lack. Help us when we misunderstand. Help us when we get distracted by the ways of this world. Help us to trust you again and again and again and to fall back in step with you or to move forward to where you are. Help us, Holy Spirit, to walk with you, to invest and invite, trusting the results to you, knowing that you are the one who will give the increase. And we pray all this, Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.